Hi, and welcome to Airwave, a student-led anesthesia podcast. My name is Alexa, and joining me today is the amazing Grace. And no, I'm not sorry for including that. And I'm also not sorry for the likely recurrence of that in the introductions, because the pun repertoire is kind of limited. Oh, Alexa, you're always way too kind, but I'm definitely always here for the puns. And I'm sure there'll be a lot more anesthesia, non-anesthesia related puns throughout our future episodes. But hi, everyone. And thank you for joining us for our third episode in our general anesthesia series. So if you're new to anesthesia or new to the podcast, we recommend watching these episodes sequentially. But if you just want a refresher on certain topics, feel free to choose episodes as you wish. And just a reminder that, as always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of our institution and that this podcast is not intended for medical advice, just good old-fashioned medical education. Which is what we're all here for, right? In the last episode, we covered setting up the OR. And now that you're all experts on getting set up, we'll dive into the next step of a general anesthetic, which to anyone who's been in an OR before should come as no surprise, induction. And specifically, what we want to cover today is the general flow of an induction and provide some clinical tidbits along the way about what you can do as a medical student during this important time of an anesthetic. And I think a good way to view kind of general anesthesia as a whole is kind of like flying a plane. And if you want to compare that to induction, it would definitely be like taking off from a runway. So it's definitely one of the most eventful times during general anesthesia. And so to get us started, what is induction? To give you an idea, and if you're like me and you like to listen to podcasts while driving, please don't do this. But for anyone else who's just at home, I'd like you to sit back, close your eyes, feel your eyelids get heavy, and slowly imagine yourself drifting off to sleep. That's induction, the process of rendering a patient unconscious. And the goal of the anesthetist is to make the process as smooth as that. It's also worth noting that induction also includes muscle relaxation if it's needed for the surgery to come, and the entire process is accomplished with a combination of appropriate monitoring, pre-oxygenation, and intravenous medications, and that's what we'd like to cover today. And hmm, Alexa, do you think it'd be best to look at this through a case? You know it. Taking off no pun intended, where we left off last episode, recall your healthy 38-year-old female patient who is undergoing a laparoscopic tubal ligation, who now enters the room. She's visibly nervous about the surgery that she's about to have. You reassure her, you explain to her step-by-step what's going to take place in the OR prior to her surgery, you explain that you'll place monitors on her, put a mask on her face that's just oxygen, and will give her medications that will make her feel dizzy Um, and tired just before she goes off to sleep. So let's break down those steps just a little bit further. As Grace mentioned, the first part of the induction is to place the monitors on the patient. Given that she's young, she's healthy, standard anesthesia monitors according to the Canadian guidelines to the practice of anesthesia will be sufficient. 
That means she'll need a non-invasive blood pressure cuff, ECG monitoring, a pulse oximeter, and because she'll be getting a neuromuscular blocker because she's going undergoing a laparoscopic procedure, she'll also need a twitch monitor. And that's definitely a good point you bring up, Alexa. It's worth noting that in the 2020 guidelines, they strengthen the recommendation for the use of neuromuscular monitoring from should to must when a neuromuscular blocking agent is being used. So definitely super important to not forget your twitch monitors. And kind of on a more general note, a hot tip to really expand your knowledge base is being up to date on the latest practice guidelines. Even knowing one or two studies can really go a long way in showing your interest in the specialty. Right. And that doesn't mean reading the Canadian Journal of Anesthesia cover to cover every month. Let's be honest, there aren't enough hours in the day to that, and I would 100% be lying if I said I did that. But even reviewing the 2020 guidelines is a good place to start to make sure you're up to speed with the latest knowledge. And kind of jumping back to monitors, um, in some procedures, you may consider more invasive monitors, such as an arterial line. But for this surgery, given the length of the surgery, the type of the surgery, and the patient's health status, more invasive monitors aren't really indicated here. And in continuing with tips, which again, I think is why we're all here, a tricky thing that I found on my clinical rotations was to figure out how to be the most useful during an induction, given that it's such an eventful time. And in doing it a few times over and over again, this is what I've learned. It's a good idea to take a momentary pause and double check that all the monitors are on correctly. So that means you want to verify that the ECG and oxygen saturation traces are there. And you also want to double check that you're getting an accurate blood pressure reading. You'll be surprised, and again, this has come from clinical experience, at the amount of times that you'll be so sure you put the monitors on the patient, only for your staff to ask you two minutes into the case, where's my ECG trace? Another tip is that you also want to make sure that all the wires that come with these monitors are organized and neat. They can get tangled far too easily. And a good way to mitigate that is to tuck the ECG wires under the pillow or even tape them into place. Tape is your friend in more situations than one. Trust me on that one. And again, anesthesia is all about preventing bad things before they happen. Being organized in your approach and making sure everything is in place before you need it is a huge part of that. And I would definitely have to agree. I think anesthesia is a huge um, area where organization is key to success. So I think on that note, another thing you want to double check um, is to make sure your IV is running. A preceptor of mine actually said, you're nothing without a good IV. I can only imagine that when a patient goes severely hypotensive, it's definitely not the time you want to discover that your IV went interstitial or has been dislodged. So you definitely want to make sure it's in the right place. You also want to check with your staff if they're happy with the gauge of the IV. Given in our case that this patient is undergoing a laparoscopic procedure with minimal blood loss, an 18 or 20 gauge IV should be sufficient. If your patient was going for a surgery with a higher risk of severe blood loss, like for example, a liver wedge resection, then this patient could require two large bore IVs, which would be 14 or 16 gauge. 
And if you think that the patient may need greater venous access and you feel comfortable with the procedure, this is a great opportunity to ask your staff if you can put one in and get some practice, which as medical students, we can all benefit from. And I can definitely second that that IV practice is definitely key. So just as a recap um, where we are so far, the monitors are on the patient, the IV is running well, and the patient is lying comfortably on the OR table. At this point, with the patient still awake, the surgical team will have a brief timeout. And this is a preoperative pause where the identity of the patient is again verified um, in addition to the procedure and its site. It only takes a quick Google search to learn from history that there's been cases where procedures were formed on the wrong site or even the wrong patient. So we definitely want to avoid that. And as a spoiler alert, that is not a good thing. Yeah, we definitely don't want that, kind of emphasizing the importance of the timeout. So at this point, um, if there was any antibiotics that were indicated to be given to the patient, they would be checked and administered, in addition to identifying if patients had any allergies or if there were any anesthetic or surgical concerns. This timeout period is also really important, just fostering this underlying culture of safety in the operating room. And once all these checks have been confirmed, induction can finally begin, which I know what you've all been waiting for. An induction begins with pre-oxygenating the patient. Think of it as filling an oxygen tank so that the patient has adequate reserve should complications occur during intubation. And to do that, you'll place a ventilator mask with 100% oxygen on the patient's face. And in order to ensure an adequate safety margin, you should aim for an end tidal oxygen concentration of at least 80%. And I know looking at the monitors, especially if you're new to the OR, can seem quite overwhelming, but you'll read this number beside the subheading ETO2. The pre-oxygenation period is also a great time to make sure the patient is at ease. And some ways you can do this are by asking them to think of their happy place, think of a nice vacation, or about plans that they may have after surgery. I think a little reassurance before a patient goes off to sleep, especially in a patient who's visibly anxious or nervous, is really important. I mean, if I were a patient, I'd rather be serenaded by Alexa than just put directly off to sleep. Grace, be careful what you wish for. Um, And you definitely might want to hear my singing voice before you agree to that. But just like in any other medical specialty, patient communication is a huge part of the job, so don't forget that. Now, going back, the patient is pre-oxygenated, so now induction can begin. And what you'll see is that each anesthetist administers slightly different drugs during induction on the basis of their training, provider comfort, and patient comorbidities. It's definitely not a one-size-fits-all. However, typical induction medications will include 1. An opioid, which serves to provide analgesia and will blunt the sympathetic response to surgical stimulus and laryngoscopy. 2. A benzodiazepine as a co-induction agent, and this could include midazolam, for example, And these agents provide amnesia and anxiolysis with minimal cardiopulmonary depression. Three, an induction agent is given. Go figure. 
These medications serve the purpose of rendering the patient unconscious in addition to providing amnesia. And lastly, a neuromuscular blocker. And these agents serve to provide muscle relaxation to improve surgical conditions, but also to make for an easier and smoother intubation. The time of onset of the neuromuscular blocker is also important as it'll dictate when it's the optimal time to intubate. And these properties can be used to the anesthetist's advantage during the specific induction techniques that's used, like a rapid sequence induction. The time of onset of the opioid, induction agent, and benzodiazepine, if it's given, is also important to consider because you all want everything to align nicely with laryngoscopy. And I think an important question then becomes, how do I know that the patient is sufficiently anesthetized? I think um, a good way to check this and how you actually do it is to assess the obicularis oculi reflex. And I am as just impressed as you are that I said that correctly, or put simply the blink reflex, which is done by lightly sweeping the eyelashes. And in this case, if the patient does not blink, that means that the depth of anesthesia is sufficient to allow for laryngoscopy. And that kind of wraps up our episode and we're going to leave airway management um, to next week. So I know that's often people's favorite topic. So definitely stay tuned for that. And I think a good thing to finish off with is mentioning that a lot of these agents, um, especially during induction, can have certain unwanted side effects as well. An example of a common one, um, say with propofol, for example, which is an induction agent, can have a cardiodepressant effect due to its effects on systemic vascular resistance, and it can reduce mean arterial pressure from 20 to 25 to 40%. So definitely, definitely want to make sure you keep an eye on those uh, monitors and blood pressure readings following induction. And for that reason, it's always a good idea to make sure you have an accurate blood pressure reading before the whole thing gets started. And there you have it. You just took your patient safely through their induction. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode, and we hope that you are able to take a few tips for the next time that you find yourself in the OR. As a recap, today we covered the major components of induction, placing the monitors on the patient, doing the timeout, pre-oxygenating the patient, and the basics of induction medications. And as mentioned, join us in our next episode where Airwaves will do its name proud and tackle the airways. And we'd like to give a big shout out and thank you to our content editors, Dr. Sean Ja, Dr. Jordan Album, and Dr. Nick Timmerman. In addition to Dr. Daniel Cordovani, who is our faculty sponsor, who this podcast would definitely not be possible without. And as always, stay tuned for updates on our website and Twitter account at Airwave Podcast. And if you like what we do or have any feedback, let us know. And until next time, keep working hard, stay healthy and safe, take some nice deep breaths and count back from 10.